It's great to see you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. And if you just learned that there is a book of the Bible called Habakkuk, then uh, let me save you some time and just encourage you to pick up one of the blue Bibles that's on the floor near you and turn to page 787. We are going to just read the last three verses of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet, um, and he wrote this short book. And uh, let me invite you to stand with me as we listen to God's word together. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray to God. Oh God, would you uh, be with us this morning? Would you uh, meet us just as we are with our thoughts and cares and uh, worries and concerns and our hopes and our dreams? And God, would you take all that we are and turn it towards you? Would you help us to see the goodness of Jesus uh, through these ancient words? Would you help us to see Jesus as he's made known to us in the cross? Would you help us to follow him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. This morning, the question that I want to ask you is this. Where does happiness come from? Where does happiness come from? If you were to answer that question, um, what would you say? What makes you happy? I read a story about a couple that was... Uh, Searching for happiness recently, they, um, there was this young couple, they lived in Colorado, and they uh, were tired of kind of living the, uh, in their own words, kind of try, tired of trying to keep up with everybody, living the rat race. They, were, they both had jobs selling timeshares, and they decided they were going to give it all up, cash it all in, sell everything they have, and see the world. And so they sold their cars and all, all of their possessions. And they flew down to Florida and they bought a boat. And uh, their plan was to see the Caribbean and from there, who knows, maybe, maybe sail around the rest of the world. And so they, they bought their boat and uh, they spent a couple months living on the boat, kind of fixing it up. And then at the beginning of February, just like two, three weeks ago, they set off and they pulled out of the harbor and they camped on the boat the first night and uh, the next day, their boat sank. <laughs> I don't know why, I just find that really funny. <laughs> um, and they got to shore, and they spent the night in a cheap hotel. They managed to grab some cash and their social security cards and a cell phone before the boat sank <laughs> on the second day. <laughs> and um, they had $90 in cash to their name. <laughs> And the Coast Guard sent them a bill for $10,000 to tow the wreckage of their sunken boat out of the uh, entrance to the harbor or whatever. 
Um, they set off to pursue their dreams, to chase happiness, and to see the world. But needless to say, circumstances did not go the way that they had anticipated. Um, and there's a quote in this article I read from the guy who said, we have no jobs, we have no savings, and nowhere to go. How do I go from having everything to ending up in a cheap hotel with nothing? Where does happiness come from? Does it come from pursuing your dreams? And if so, what happens when your dreams sink on the second day of the adventure? Last week, we began a new series called The Beautiful Sacrifice, and I talked a bit about two um, approaches to God and therefore two ways to live our lives. Two ways to understand God and therefore ourselves, the way of glory and the way of the cross. And the, the way of the cross says that the pattern of of life and, and what we can expect, what you can expect from life if you choose to follow Jesus is that you will follow him in the pattern of his life, that you will move from life through death out the other side to new life, to resurrection life. And we will experience this pattern over and over again in life and through it all God, God is good and God is with us, and we will know him in his life, and we will know him in his suffering, and we will know him in his glory. That is the pattern of life that Christians can expect to experience as we follow Jesus. The way of the cross shows us that the pattern of our lives will be life and death and resurrection. But the way of glory imagines that we can skip one of those steps. Uh, which one do you want to skip? Like the death part, right? And the way of glory is saying, no, I want to get to the resurrection life part. I just don't want to go through the, the suffering part. I want to get to glory without experiencing uh, frustration, tragedy, without death. The, the way of glory mistakenly pictures life as just kind of taking us from where we are and everything just gets better and better and better. Now, we've all seen sort of like the extreme parody of this on... Um, on like TBN, right, the television preachers who promise, you know, if you just have enough faith that you can be wealthy and healthy. And, um, and you know, I think that we tend to kind of see through that. But often I think we see through it not because, you know, we reject it, not because we've concluded that it's not true, we just think it's really tacky. And we haven't actually gotten the heart of what's, what's, what's missing in that approach to life. And we don't realize that we often do the very same thing. The way of glory leaves us frustrated and confused when the circumstances of life get in the way of our dreams. And when the, you know, the, the, we all know, I mean, we've all lived long enough to know that life rarely goes the way we want for longer than, you know, a couple of weeks or months at a time, or, you know, certainly not more than a year or so, right? And when that happens, we get frustrated. And then we wonder where God is, and we wonder what God is doing, and we wonder why God isn't doing, why isn't God holding up his end of the bargain? So what does that have to do with happiness? Well, think about it like this. Um, if we expect life to be kind of uh, this pattern of the, the way of glory, then we expect life to go from where it is to just getting better all the time. And then when reality sets in, we're frustrated. I mean, think about it like this. If we expect life to be a 10, and our experience is that life is like an 8, then we're frustrated, right? And we're disappointed, and we're unhappy. 
But imagine another person who expects that life is going to be, I don't know, say a five. And life ends up being a seven. You know, your life ends up exceeding your expectations, then you're happy. So the difference between that person who's living an eight and is unhappy and the person who's living a seven and is happy is not their, uh, is not their reality, right? It's their expectation of life. And the strange, the strange truth that social researchers have pointed out recently is that our expectations have a larger impact on our happiness than our reality. And so what that means for us is that the, what we expect life to look like has a, has a great deal to do with how happy we will be in life. So you might listen to that and think, well, then we should all just become Eeyore. You know, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, just Eeyore, you know, the Winnie the Pooh's like sad donkey friend who's pessimistic and wanders through life depressed and just poor little old me, um, does it mean we should do that? No, it means that we can't look to our happiness to determine our circumstances. That our, uh, or we can't determine our circumstances to, <laughs> I said it backwards and then my wife corrected me, but I got lost, let me say that again. We can't look at our circumstances to determine our happiness. The way of glory expects that my life will go from wherever I am now to glory and to greatness with very few detours along the way. And so when the circumstances of life get in the way of my plans, I'm confused and I'm frustrated and I wonder where God is in the midst of it. On the way of glory, we'll always let our circumstances define our happiness. And we'll end up looking to our circumstances. We'll look at our lives and we'll say, are things going well? And if things are going well, then we say, God is good. And if we look at our lives and things aren't going well, then we say, well, God must not be good or he must not care. And so we're kind of always trying to outrun. You remember the, uh, you remember the movie Aladdin? Um, I, this just came to me this week as I was thinking about this. You know, there's this moment where Aladdin and what's his mon- a monkey's name is Abu, and they go into the Cave of Wonders to find the, uh, the lamp, the magic lamp with the genie in it. And Aladdin goes up these, this huge staircase, and he, the lamp is right there, and he's going, this is it, this is it. And as he's doing that, Abu has gotten, been distracted by this beautiful gem or something like that. And he grabs this gem, and this monstrous voice says, you may not touch the, um, uh, what does he say? The, uh, I wrote it down, sorry. <laughs> I don't know what he says. You may not touch, touch the forbidden treasure. <laughs> and, and like everything begins to crumple, un- crumble underneath him, and there, there is the man race to, to get out of the treasure cave before uh, it takes him down. And that's what life looks like when we live, uh, or when we try to live, in the way of glory. You may have the treasure in your hands, but even when you have the treasure in your hands, you're trying to outrun the circumstances of life. And you're frustrated at anyone who seems to be getting in your way or messing things up for you. Well, this morning I want to show you another way, another way to live, a pattern for life that I think is both realistic and good. It's a way of living that is meaningful and beautiful. It's an approach to life where we don't just live as the victims of our circumstances, but where Jesus is the one who carries us from life through death out the other side to resurrection, to new life, to new life. Habakkuk is an admittedly obscure uh, book of the Bible. Um, I've never preached a sermon on the book of Habakkuk before. Um, but Habakkuk was a prophet who lived at a, at a very interesting time in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. 
where God's people have been rebelling against him for so long that they kind of stand on this precipice and the question is, God, is God going to continue to be faithful when his people are unfaithful? And, um, and um, Habakkuk looks at, at life and he says, life is not good. And things are not going well. And no one is living the dream. In verse 17 he says, the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine. And the olives aren't growing. And the fields yield no fruit. Now what he said there is there, there is no food. And then he continues, there's no, the flock has been cut off, there's no cattle in the stall. Um, and you might think, okay, this means something, right? What does it mean? Well, it means, I mean, think about, like, where do you keep your wealth? You keep it in the bank, for the most part, or in your house, right? In the ancient world, they, people had currency, but, but, but wealth was kept primarily in, our, in their land and in their livestock, right? And so what Habakkuk is describing here is complete economic collapse. There is no food. There is no money. The land isn't producing. The livestock are dead. And furthermore, when Habakkuk looks to the horizon, the enemy of God's people, the Babylonians, are right there on the border. They are threatening to invade. And, uh, and Habakkuk in this book is basically shouting at God and saying, God, what are you doing? Do you see this? And how, God, yes, we've been wicked and we have rebelled against you, but how would you use a nation that is more wicked than we are to bring judgment upon your people? Habakkuk is saying, God, I believe in you, but I'm not flourishing. And yet when I look around, I see these wicked people, these people who don't believe in you, they don't acknowledge you. They're far, far more wicked than we are, and they're they're flourishing. They are... They are getting ahead in life. And your people are suffering. God, what are you doing? Now, I think we have to um, just pause and ask, like, do we, do we, can we um, identify with Habakkuk here? I think that most of us um, know that despite our best plans, life rarely goes the way that we expect it to. And I've just been struck and, and in some ways kind of overwhelmed in the last couple of weeks at just... The, how many situations there are, even in the life of our church, um, let's say this carefully, but not that people, not that we have issues with people, but that there are so many people in our church that have issues. Does that make sense? That we are struggling, that um, uh, whether, whether there's issues relating to our health or our jobs, or whether it's um, our finances and wondering, God, are you going to provide or it's talking to people who have been deeply hurt and are understandably angry at God. Many of us right now are walking through situations and we're saying, God, this is not good. And God, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of hope. I don't know what you're doing and I don't know when you're going to show up. Life is frustrating and it feels hopeless. And that's what Habakkuk is talking about. And through the earlier uh, part of the book, He's wrestled through that with God and he's shouted at God and he's, he's um, well now he comes to uh, the end and he's made peace and he gives us his prescription. What do we do when life is not flourishing and things aren't going well and we're experiencing frustration and we are not, we are not living the dream? Well, Habakkuk shows us that though there's no food and though my bank account is empty and even though 
I see my neighbors who don't love God prospering, and though my kids are driving me nuts, and my marriage is strained, and though my health is not good, and the future is unclear, he says in verse 17, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We look at that and say, what? Are you kidding me? The way of glory says, God cannot possibly be good when I am struggling like this. But Habakkuk shows us another way to live because God is God. Because God is God, we can bring him both our worries and our worship. Because God is God, we don't have to hide from him. We don't have to put on a smiling face when we show up at church or when we, people ask us, how are things going? We don't have to pretend like everything's okay. And we can cry out to God. We can shout out to God. We can say, God, I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. I, God, I'm struggling. God, life is hard. We can bring him our worries. He's big enough to deal with it. We can cry out to the God of the universe because he is big enough to handle our worries and he is worthy to receive our praise. The way of glory looks at our circumstances and says, God cannot be good if I'm not doing well, but the way of the cross says that I'm going to, deter- I'm going to interpret my circumstances in light of what God has told me is true about who he is. And so no matter what is going on in my life, God is good. No matter what is going on in my life, God is good. And so God's people can thrive no matter what is going on around us because God is always good. In 2012, a woman named Kara Tippetts and her husband moved to Colorado Springs to plant a new church. They are um, part of our denomination and um, they, uh, they moved to Colorado, Colorado Springs to plant a church and they had only been in Colorado Springs about 10 days when those wildfires that just ravaged Colorado a couple years ago uh, set in. And uh, you know, they haven't even unpacked their home yet and all of a sudden they find themselves run- racing you know, down the mountain with their kids and all their worldly possessions in their car. Um, it's, you know, it's, God, what are you doing? God, why are you doing this? And when the fire subsided and they were able to move back home and begin to clean up the smoke damage and begin to unpack their lives, it was only two weeks later when Kara found a lump and was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And the cancer spread throughout her entire body. You have to ask the question, God, what are you doing? God, why would you do this to this couple? Um, God, haven't we sacrificed so much to follow you, to make Jesus known? Um, Haven't we sacrificed enough? And Kara began to write about her struggle, and she wrote, We came to Colorado Springs in strength but we were reduced to utter weakness. And in her weakness, Kara ministered to thousands of people around the world. As she wrote about the nearness of God in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her struggle. 
She passed away in March of 2015. And the point of that is not, see, look at how much God did. Like, that makes it worth it, right? That is not the point. But the point is this, that like millions of Christians before her, Kara experienced the nearness of God when the circumstances of life were not going the way that she expected them to. And she experienced the goodness of God, not despite her circumstances, but because of them and in the midst of them. Because God reigns over our circumstances, we can bring him our worries and we can give him our worship. We can praise him even when life is not going the way that we would expect it to. Last week we gave out um, these journals, the beautiful sacrifice journals, and um, every Sunday in this series I'm going to try to give you a couple just practical take-home questions. So get out your journals if you have them. If you didn't bring them, bring them back next week. We've got a few more in the back if you want to grab one. But I want to give you a couple of just practical takeaway questions to reflect on as you go home and, uh, and as you reflect this week. And so the first question is this. What, what circumstances of life do you look to to determine your happiness? What circumstances of life do you look to to determine your happiness? Is it uh, how many zeros at the end of the ba- you know, in your bank account? Is it the respect of your coworkers? Is it the success of your job? Is it the success of your children? Is it that vacation that you've always longed to take? What circumstances of life do you look to to determine your happiness? And then secondly, what would it look like to praise God even when those circumstances don't go your way? They may go your way. I mean, this doesn't all have to be doom and gloom, right? Sometimes circumstances do go our way, but how do we praise God regardless of our circumstances. Because God reigns over our circumstances, we can bring him our worries and we can praise him whether life is going our way or not. So the big question then is why? Uh, why, how, why can we praise God no matter what's going on in our lives? How can we live with, how can we flourish, how can we thrive even when life isn't happy? Or how can we be happy in the midst of difficulty? And the answer is in verse 19. Verse 19 says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. You know, it would be tempting to just jump over that last part. To the choir master with stringed instruments. But what Habakkuk is saying is this is meant to be sung. This is a song that we can sing back to God. Why can we praise God no matter what's going on in our lives? Because no matter what life throws at me, God is my strength. My strength is not my strength. My own strength is not my strength. I can praise God no matter what life throws at me because it's His strength that is my strength and His strength is seen most clearly in me when I am weak. Habakkuk says, he makes my feet like the deer's. I can walk in precarious places. I can walk on the heights. I can walk where it's not safe. I can be sure-footed. I can live without fear because God is my strength. You know, it occurs to me that um, many of us 
kind of being a part of this new church has been um, this time of kind of having a, maybe a, a childhood faith or a, a faith that has lain dormant for many years and rekindled and reawakened. And, and um, we've seen, it's been such a blessing to see people who have been far from God walking with him and kind of coming to life. And yet for many of us, I think that there's still this, this sense that what God really wants to do in me is to strengthen me. And what Habakkuk is telling us is that God's strength will be most apparent when we are <coughs> What God wants to do in us is not strengthen us. What God is going to do is going to be through our weakness. The story of the Bible, the story of the God who actually exists is the story of the cross. Of the God who moves from the joy I mean, think about this. The God who moves from the joy of Christmas and this excitement about the birth of Jesus and, and life. And yet the church calendar moves from Christmas to Good Friday, to the crucifixion, to the death of God. And it's only after the crucifixion that we celebrate new life in the resurrection on Easter. And that is the pattern of the Christian life. The story of God is the way of the cross where he turns our world upside down and he shows us what real strength looks like. And there's this place in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2 where the author uh, is reflecting on what it means that Jesus is really the king and that Jesus is really ruling where he, he says exactly this. Uh, in Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews is remembering back to Psalm 8, which talks about the Messiah and God putting all things under the feet of the Messiah. And it's this image of, of the Messiah who would come and he would finally reestablish the rule of God and the reign of God and all things would be placed under his feet. And yet Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says that that is true, and yet we don't see it the way that it really is. Uh, Hebrews 2 says, um, we don't see all things under his feet today. And of course, that's absolutely true, right? When we look at the world, it doesn't look like all things are under the feet of Jesus. It doesn't look like he is ruling in strength. So how do you resolve that tension? Well, this is what Hebrews 2 says. It says that the strength that we see in Jesus is this. We see Jesus crowned with glory on the cross. It is in his moment of greatest weakness that we see what true strength looks like. It is in the moment of his utter humiliation that we see what glory actually looks like. It is in the greatest act of evil that the world has ever known that justice is actually won. It is in Jesus' death that we find real life. That's the story of the cross. The good news is that God has done something about evil and sin and death and brokenness in our world. We're not just sitting down here going, God, do you see us? And shouting to empty air. God does see. God does hear. God comes and he does something about it. The surprising thing, the thing that no one expected is that he took it all upon himself on the cross. And God is even now working to apply the work of Jesus on the cross to every square inch of the universe. Until he brings all things under the feet of Jesus. And Jesus moves from life to death to resurrection. And those of us who would follow him should expect 
the pattern of our lives to look exactly the same. So what would that let's, like? What would that actually look like in real life? What would it look like to kind of turn our back on the way of glory and embrace the reality of the way of the cross? Well, I want to um, I want to say two things. I want to say something just very specifically, and then I want to say something about what this would look like very generally. And the first thing um, that if we were to turn our backs on the way of glory and know God's strength as we follow him from life through death and out the other side to resurrection. The first thing that I think that would change in our lives is it would change the way that we pray. Um, For some of us, and for myself, it might actually mean that we pray. Uh, But it would change the way that we pray because um, when Jesus talked about, when Jesus' disciples came and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, one of the things Jesus told us to pray is pray... Uh, for God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done on earth. And yet I am so aware of the reality that when I pray, I'm absolutely praying about a kingdom, and it's the kingdom of Christ. And for so many of us, Christianity becomes the way that we are going to get our kingdom done. God, would you bless the thing that I'm doing? I pray this constantly. This is so complicated for a pastor. God, would you grow this church that I'm trying to plant? It would make you look really glorious by me too. Right? <laughs> yeah, we can talk more about that later. God, would you grow my business? God, would you do this in my kids? God, would you give me the freedom from always worrying about money? God, would you grow my kingdom in Jesus' name? Amen. But what God wants to do in you is in weakness, not in strength. And it's when we take our eyes off of our kingdom and we begin to pray for God's kingdom to come in this world and in our lives that we know his strength in our weakness. Following Jesus in the way of the cross would change the things that we pray for and the way that we pray for them. Very specifically. Secondly, in general, what would change if we embraced the way of the cross And I don't know how else to say this other than every single thing about the way that you look at your life. Um, See, that's very general. Um, But think about it like this. If we think, you know, I'm going to live maybe 70, 80, 90 years, and then that's all there is. And, um, I mean, that's going to mess with us. And because most of us are at the point where, oh, some of you are young. <laughs> I'm at the point where I'm like, I'm, I guess I'm entering middle age, and I'm starting to realize that I'm not over the hill, but I'm, you know, I'm not as naive as I was in my 20s, and I don't have this sense that all things are still possible. And there's this overwhelming sense that, man, there's a lot that I want to do in life And if it doesn't happen, I'm missing out. I'm missing out on life. But if we embrace the way of the cross, life, death, and resurrection, we begin to see our lives in terms of preparation for what God is calling us to in his kingdom that does not end at death. Um, I mean, the clearest maybe example of this is to think about some of you did not grow up in Christian homes and go to Christian youth groups, so this might be lost on you, but you'll you'll make sense of it. Um, you know, every Christian high schooler 
that I grew up with kind of had this sense of, I really can't wait for Jesus to come back, but not too soon because I want to have sex first. Okay? <laughs> like, please, Jesus, don't, not, not too quickly, right? Because I'm going to miss out if, I don't, if that doesn't happen to me first. And so, God, um, like, please come, but, but, you know, I mean, take your time. No rush. Or, I mean, how do we do this? I mean, maybe it's, it's saying something like, um, yeah, you know, it's great that Jesus is king, but what difference does it make if, if all I ever do is work and work and work and I never get time to enjoy? All I'm doing is surviving and I never actually get to enjoy life. Um, there's, you know, sure, Jesus is king, but what does it matter if my uh, marriage is strained, if my kids won't listen to me? And if you only have another, maybe, I don't know, 50 years, maybe more, maybe less, then that's probably a good question to ask. And if you think of, I heard somebody say this, we have this tendency to think about heaven as like a high school reunion, where we're going to get together with these people that we used to know and reminisce about old times, and it's going to be kind of shallow and weird. But if Jesus is leading us from this life through death into the resurrection life, then maybe this life is more like an apprenticeship or an internship for what comes. Jesus is giving us a calling and a vocation. And everything that we face in life now is shaping us and forming us for something that we can't even yet fathom. What is it going to be? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're not going to get there and say, ah, gosh, I really missed out. Now, if you have that perspective... Um, if you have that perspective that everything I experience now is just preparation, it's internship, it's, it's a denial of self now because this is preparing me for something that lies ahead that is far grander than I could ever imagine, then we're never going to turn around and be like, oh gosh, I really missed out. I really missed out. Because the reality is God is not taking anything good away from you. He's preparing you for real life. So let's not waste our energy trying to avoid unhappiness in this life. Because it's only um, trying to avoid unhappiness is really impossible, isn't it? And the more energy we spend trying to avoid it, the more frustrated and bitter we are when it comes. But the reality is this. You have a Father who loves you. You have a father who cares for you. You have a father who is wealthy beyond imagination. He is good and he loves you. He's not trying to take good things away from you. He's training you for what lies ahead. We live so often like we're orphans, but our story is a story of abundance. We are the children of a wealthy father. Um, if you saw The Blind Side, the movie, or uh, read the book, it's a story about a man named Michael Orr who went on to become a, uh, a football player, but he was, uh, after bouncing from home to home, uh, he was taken in by a, a wealthy Memphis family and eventually adopted. And when Michael Orr first came to live with this family, they would go out to eat and he would come back home and they would discover that Michael had um, stuffed his food, his pockets of his jacket full of like half-eaten tacos. 
And they would come in and it would begin to reek and they would come to Michael and say, Michael, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, uh, <laughs> they'd take this food out and Michael, why are you like hoarding this food? And the father came and said, Michael, you have to understand, I own 17 Taco Bells. <laughs> you are never going to run out of food. And Michael's response was, sometimes I forget. How about you? Do you forget that you have a father who loves you? He's not trying to pry good things out of your hands. He has a calling and a vocation for you. And everything he is doing in your life now is preparing you for something far grander than you could ever imagine. He's not stingy. He loves you. Let's pray together. God, would you help us to praise you? Would you help us to praise you when times are good? And would you help us to praise you when we are frustrated and we are discouraged and we don't know what the future holds? God, would you help us um, to be honest with you about what's really going on in our lives? Because it's not like you don't know it. Would you help us to be, as a church, a place that is safe? to bring our worries as well as our worship. God, as we've experienced, um, many of us just in the past couple of weeks, um, starting to come to terms with the anger that we have towards you, with the frustration that, that you don't seem to be working the way that we would want, or you don't seem to be doing it fast enough. God, would you help us not to run from you, but help us to approach you with vulnerability and say, God, this is, this is what's true about who I am and where I am. Would you help us to bring you our worries? And then would you help us to worship? Would you help us to sing? Because it's in our weakness that we know your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.